Welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you. Our next guest is a veteran Canadian film, television, and stage actor. He's a member of the Order of Canada and well-known for his work with and interest in Canada's military and veterans. He's often a fascinating new book, which in, in some ways is about veterans. It's also about the nature of war and conflict itself, the impact it has on those who fight in them, their families, their societies. It's called By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memory, and Families. It's going to be here for a WordFest event, November 20th at Memorial Park Library, wordfest.com. Uh, joining us on the line this afternoon, uh, the one and only R.H. Thompson. So great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Nice to be on. You know, I've been to Calgary. I've worked in Calgary a number of times. <laughs> oh, and I, really? I've loved it every time, A, because the mountains are right there, but Theater Calgary is great, so mm-hmm. maybe they'll ask me back. You never know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, it's interesting, this new book, because this is a world you've kind of inhabited. Uh, you know, this is your family. These are the stories you grew up with. I mean, you wrote a play in 2001, The Lost Boys, that was, you know, involving these letters from these uncles of yours, these great uncles that fought in World War One. So what brought you to, to this project in, in this book now? The you know you sort of fall into some of these projects. I mean, I only wrote the play because a, um, a theater in Ottawa phoned me up and said, "Hey, I've had a play fall through in my schedule. You said you wanted to write a play." Oh, really? So I I cranked it out, going, oh, "Okay," but playing the Lost Boys in three cities, which is about the seven great uncles and the seven hundred letters and all the rest of it. Um, not that one should diminish their experience. It's those people who came to my dressing room every night, one man show. And, you know, nice show or, you know, well, I didn't really care for it or whatever they said. Then they all started telling me their stories. Mm -hmm. And I sat there for three months of nights and people sat down and unasked. These war stories came out of them about their families. And I thought, well, enough of my family. There's all these stories. And I know they're probably in your family, Rob, and then your listeners' families. And we don't tell them. We don't get them out. So... Somebody's got to be the story keeper, so get in there and take them out. So that led to a larger project, which I call The World Remembers, where we set out to name every soldier killed in World War One, And I mean the Canadians, the Australians, the French, the British, the Americans, the South Africans, the Germans, the Slovenians, everybody. Wow. Because I don't know what else you do on Remembrance Day. You know, we for 100 years, we said we remember them. Mm-hmm. But nobody says who them is. And 68,000 Canadians were killed. Let's name them. And then let's name the Americans and the South Africans and the British and the French and the Slovenians and the Germans and everybody who is Canada now. So that led to that. And then the, the publisher said, why don't you write a book about this? So it is about family, but it's about your family and the listeners' families, but it's also about all the different communities of people who live here now in Canada, and how do we make memory out of that? Yeah, it's staggering to think. I mean, each of those statistics, each of those numbers, I mean, that's that was a person, that was a Canadian, that was a young man yeah. uh, who was sent off to fight, and many never came home, and it's the people that received these letters, it's the people that welcomed them back, it's the people who mourned their death, it was all these other lives that were impacted. But it's at such a colossal scale. When you think about, you know, the, the reach that each one of those individuals had and yeah. multiply that, as you say, over 60,000 Canadians and everyone else around the world, it, it becomes something pretty massive. Think about the children who weren't born. Yeah. Think about the grandchildren who weren't born. And, you know, there's one fantasy part of the book. Well, fantasy, imaginative part. I go back to my great-uncle George was killed at Passchendaele. And 
I found it was fairly torturous by the time he was dug out alive and then someone said this guy's still alive and he was carried on someone's shoulder for 10 to 15 minutes to a medical dressing station in a pillbox so I reenacted the walk I thought well the least I can do because he was on someone's shoulder and his name was uh, Sergeant Stanbridge he was on this man's shoulder being walked you know half conscious back to the dressing station and by the time he got to the dressing station the doctor said no throw him on the back he's dead and the sergeant said they were stacked up like cordwood so i reenacted the walk thinking well let's actually ask what was it like in his last 15 minutes and it kind of changes how you remember things but that's true for all the canadian families who lost it's true for all the Punjabi Canadian people, because there were 74,000 killed from in the British Indian Army. Yeah. Uh, the Americans, the Irish, everyone, and we are everyone now. So I think we've got to start paying attention to that. So the book is a way to do that. Anyway, on the fantasy walk, I brought in my imagination as I'm walking with the dying George on my shoulder, I say, wait a minute. I think his children, right? Mm -hmm. I think they're here. I think his grandchildren that were never born, they're here. His mother is here, as if the ghosts were walking with me. We have a terrible habit of we love the men and women of of our armed forces who go abroad to fight. We tend to forget them when they come home. And I can't figure that out. Why we tend to forget our veterans so easily, and we've done it in every war, We're better at it now, right? There's more care for veterans with PTSD. But we still, I know there are uh, Canadian veterans from Afghanistan sleeping on cardboard in the streets. What is that? Why do we do that, Rob? Yeah, I wish I knew, right? And I mean, it's... It speaks to these, you know, it speaks to the impact of war. And that's part of what you're doing here is is to get us to to think about that differently, understand that in a different way. But it also speaks to, you know, these these stages of narratives, um, you know, and and in the aftermath of war, uh, it's almost like we say we we want to remember where we want to to honor those. But it's it's like we want to move on at the same time. Thank you for saying that it is in the narratives we tell afterwards. In the book, I suggest that we, the narratives told afterwards are a lot of the cleaning up process. We clean up and we tidy things away and we don't talk about, well, let's talk about the suicides of the the Canadian veterans who returned from Afghanistan. I mean, it wasn't Veterans Affairs who added them up. It was a newspaper. They went digging. They said, how many Canadians have come back from Afghanistan that committed suicide? And the number they came up with, this was several years ago, almost equaled the number who were actually killed in Afghanistan. So we don't wear that as a country. No. You know, we name bridges after them. We have highways of heroes. We don't name them. And I, that's a curiosity to me. I can't quite unpack. And so the World Remembers Project, which is to name everybody, Okay, here's my small attempt, and it's in the Canadian War Museum right now. They're running a display. I would love for a museum in Calgary to say, I want to show this display, and I would send them the software, and i say, put it in a projector, put it in a computer, project it on that wall. I mean, it's the least we can do, and this is only one war. It's the First World War. So the book does ask questions about who tells the stories after the war and who's a 
agenda do they serve? And I'm not kind to some people in that. Yeah. I want to ask you about the title, which is interesting, because by the ghost light, and in a way, you know, it, it sort of speaks to, you know, the, the shadows that these these sacrifices cast and, you know, and, and how they're sort of almost present with us in a way. It's also a term from the world of theater, which makes yeah. for an interesting metaphor here. Yeah, because I'm a theater actor as well as TV and film. And, you know, when everyone goes home after the show and the audience are gone, when the crew is leaving and the actors have gone, they usually put one light bulb on stage. Everything else is turned out. And the light bulb is called the ghost light. And it's there to keep, you know, actors like me who are going home from falling off the stage. But it's also there for a, a kind of theater superstition that we think sometimes there's ghosts of actors who are still working in the darkness of a the theater, which is why theaters are very lively places sometimes. And when you stand on stage in a theater, whether the theater of your mind or your memory or the actual theater, lit by that single light, which for me is your memory, you see, well, I see a lot of my family and I see a lot of all the people who turned up in my dressing room and told me their stories. And so it's standing there, standing by the ghost light, as it were, in the position of your memory. You know, we talk about the, the First World War, the Great War. I mean, that was over 100 years ago. And, and here we are in 2023, and it feels like, you know, we're still in a, a world of conflict. Um, yep. So, I mean, what, what do you hope people take from, from this book? And not just remembering the past, but, you know, dealing with, with our present. I would hope people might... Uh, I encourage people to be wary of a one-sided story. If someone's telling a story only with one side, good for them. But stories usually come in two, three, and four sides. And if someone's only giving you one side, be wary, because you're not hearing the full dimension of that story. And especially as we hear, here we are in the Middle East, here's the Russians pounding the whatever out of Ukrainians. Yeah. The stories that are coming out of there, told in the press, told on social media, try to keep two ears open. Try to hear all of the stories about the war rather than settling into an us and them. Because so quickly in war we go, well, it's like a divorce. A divorce, you know, my sister's divorced and okay, you got to choose. Was it the ex-husband or was it my sister? And of course you choose a side. Well, we do that in war too. And it doesn't often it doesn't turn out to be the actual truth of the situation. So I encourage people to listen to two-sided stories, three-sided stories, before arriving at conclusions. Right, it goes back to those narratives you talked about, because there's the, the whole period before a conflict, there's, there's the chaos, uh, and you know the, the awful stories that emerge during a conflict, and then that, that phase that we talked about afterward, the, the cleanup, the, you know, the myth, mythologizing that happens. Yeah, and the cleanup, for me, I mean, if I look at November the 11th, which is an honorable time, and we need to do it, and, but I look at the memorials, most of which in this country were built in the 1920s, uh, and the reaction, and most of them are, they're not glorifying war, but they're putting a very positive sheen on it. Um, and... Okay, World War II had more moral purpose because the Nazis were toxic and, you know, the death camps were going on and the Holocaust was going on. World War I wasn't that at all. Mm-hmm. World War I, you know, killed nine and a half million soldiers um, because there were some diplomatic mistakes. 
um, people couldn't head it off, and then a whole bunch of treaties kicked in, and most of the kings of the countries who were fighting each other were all related. They're all cousins, right? Yeah. The Kaiser in Russia is related to Queen Victoria, uh, to George in Britain is related to the German Kaiser. They're all related. And for these reasons, nine and a half million soldiers were killed, including seven of my great uncles. So when you clean up after a war like that, I get very suspicious. You know, if you call it a fight for democracy and freedom, that may have been World War Two. That was not World War One. There were no democracies. They were all monarchies. Only freedom being in, sorry, I'm into the book now. The only freedom was Belgium's freedom. So when you dress up, you have to be careful who, cognizant, who is putting the story over the war at the end. And whose purpose does that serve? If you told the story of World War II or Korea, it would be very, very different. Yeah. World War One. I'm sorry, it was a... It was a terrible, terrible, terrible waste. And about six or seven million civilians. Nobody remembers the Russians. The Russians had more killed than any other country. We don't remember them. I mean, there were almost as many Italians killed as British. You kind of shake your head at that one. Yeah. And there's Chinese. Chinese were killed because they were, they were cleaning up the battlefields. They were hired by the armies. And they all traveled across Canada. And some of them died in the trains. They were coming back from Europe, having been gassed and this and that. And they, they and they died on these trains going across Canada, Vancouver, to be taken back to China. They were buried, and they're buried in. Some were buried in Regina, some were buried in Vancouver, some were buried in Halifax. And they have a Commonwealth War Graves Commission gravestone. Those stories are important. So it's once you open the door to telling the personal stories, it's endless. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. doesn't mean you don't go home, ask your grandfather, ask your great-uncle, ask your grandmother. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the project you're involved in. We'll let people know. It's theworldremembers.org. The book is called By the Ghostlight Wars, Memory and Families. The event's happening in Calgary, November 20th, Memorial Park Library. More details at wordfest.com. R.H. Thompson, it's been a real pleasure having you with us here this afternoon. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Rob. I encourage people to go to the website, and you can search the names there. You can say, okay, I'm going to see if my great-grandfather's name was part of that. And you'll see the countries. Oh, okay, French Army, whatever, Australian Army, British Army, Canadian Army, and then you plug in the name, and you plug in the year that you think he was killed. And then you, if you put in Smith, Canadian Smith killed in 1917, you probably get about 182 Smiths. Mm-hmm. And then you look through those Smiths to see which was your, your relative. Well, have a look. TheWorldRememembers.org. R.H., thanks again. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate the time. Likewise. There you go. That is uh, veteran Canadian actor R.H. Thompson, uh, star of film, television, and stage. Uh, member of the Order of Canada, as we mentioned, uh, with his uh, work on a lot of these uh, issues related to veterans. Uh, so he's involved in that project, theworldremembers.org, and he's got his new book, which we talked about, By the Ghostlight Wars, Memory and Families. He'll be in town on November 20th. Details at wordfest.com. <laughs> In this hour, I want to talk about one particular aspect of our military history, uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force. We are getting set to mark the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Now, actually, going back to World War I, uh, there was something at the time called the Canadian Air Force. 
But it wasn't until April 1st, 2024, that the Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, as we know it, as an independent military element, came into existence. So we're marking 100 years of service for the RCAF and all those who have worn the uniform over the years. There's a new book out marking that anniversary. And in fact, an event happening here in Calgary tomorrow, uh, or rather tonight, actually. Uh, check that tonight. Uh, 5.30 this evening, 5.30 to 7 at the Hangar Flight Museum in the Northeast. Uh, So that's happening this evening. Uh, To talk about this new publication, it's called Pathway to the Stars, 100 Years of the RCAF. Uh, Joining us to talk more about it is the uh, co-author of the book, co-founder of the RCAF Foundation, to which this book's proceeds are dedicated Michael Hood, retired Lieutenant General, former commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Uh, Lieutenant General Hood, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks very much, Rob. A pleasure to join you. Well, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a big anniversary coming up, and there's going to be a lot of focus on the, the role and the history of the Royal Canadian Air Force. But talk a bit about how this, this project all came together. Uh, certainly, you know, I spent 33 years in the, in the Air Force, uh, had a wonderful career, nothing but fantastic memories, and believe it's an institution uh, that should be cherished and uh, and celebrated. And so what better year to celebrate than in the hundreds? So about three years ago, myself and my co-author thought we could uh, put together, um, you know, an interesting book, 100 stories for 100 years, maybe focusing less on the aircraft and, and more on the people and the missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to let Canadians know a little bit more of their Air Force's history, and of course all the proceeds go to the RCF Foundation, as you mentioned, which, uh, again, important uh, part of the things I, I, I look after. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a different world today, but, uh, you know, you look at those those early days just coming out of World War One as Canada's kind of, you know, coming into its own as, as an independent country. Um, so what, what do we see then as the beginnings and the basis of, of the Royal Canadian Air Force? Well, you, you highlighted, actually, you know, of course, during the during the First World War, you'd be familiar with Billy Bishop and maybe William right. Barker. They, they were Canadians who uh, trained in the Royal Flying Corps. Uh, served in the war, but in in British units. Um, Towards the end of the war, there was an entity created called the the Canadian Air Force. Uh, Came back to Canada after after the war and was disbanded quietly uh, and then stood up, as you quite rightly pointed out, um, when royal patronage was given to the Royal Canadian Air Force on April 1st, 1924. And what was significant about that? Um... Well, you know, I think it was recognizing a, a growing country in Canada that, uh, you know, while we were fiercely uh, supportive of, of England, of course, in two world wars, uh, but an independent uh, air force was was pretty important, foundational for the country, because, in fact, in those year, early years, most of the north was mapped by the Royal Canadian Air Force. The distances required across Canada were facilitated by aviation. So there were a lot of aviation pioneers in Canada, and there's a great history about it that we've tried to capture in this book. Yeah, and as we go from, you know, the, the end of the First World War, as the RCAF comes in, into its own, it comes into existence. By the time we get to the Second World War, things have changed a lot, and the RCAF has become a, a major force and, and played a really big role in, in World War II, didn't it? Yeah, the first units that went over in the uh, in the Second World War were Air Force squadrons. 
um, four hundred one squadron uh, at the time was number one squadron, but became four hundred one squadron. Uh, fought in the Battle of Britain, and Canada went on to establish about forty five other squadrons of all capabilities: bombers, fighters, uh, anti submarine warfare aircraft, and grew to be the fourth largest air force in the world at the end of the Second World War. Quite remarkable for a country our size. Well, no kidding. And I mean, aside from from our role in in some of the big conflicts in the 20th century, I mean, you know, we we know and even still today, you know, the the important role that the Air Force plays when it comes to uh, disaster relief, uh, search and rescue operations. So over the years, what kind of different roles then has the RCAF taken on? Well, you know, certainly, first and foremost, the role of of the Air Force is to protect Canada and Canadians. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but also to protect Canadian interests where the government uh, chooses to uh, to deploy the military. My own career started just before the first Gulf War back in 1990, and over the 33 years I've been deployed really around the globe on, on all those types of missions, whether it was disaster release, relief, uh, warfare, uh, you know, joining NATO measures to uh, combat uh, Russian aggression in, in Crimea back in 2014. So, you know, the Air Force is out there every day quietly doing the business of the country and uh, proudly so. And part of this book is about telling those stories uh, of those who had served, right? And I mean, uh, you know, the, the the idea of that kind of service, like service, it crosses the, the, you know, the lines, whether it's, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, whatever. But, you know, to, to be a part of the Royal Canadian Air Force, to, to fly those planes, fly those missions, it's a different kind of service. It's a different kind of skill set. What, what are some of the common threads you see, you know, through all of these stories of all of those who have worn that uniform over the years? Well, I think you highlighted it. it, it it's really about the people. Um, you know, our average Canadians from, you know, if you just think of the number of farm boys who joined during the, from the prairies who, who joined the military during two world wars to, you know, the men and women that, uh, that, that serve today. It, it's the people and, and they bring a Canadian ingenuity to things. Um, if I could, I could tell you a number of stories of, where, you know, Canada became the go-to force to depend on because they always found a way to do it. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, part of our national heritage, the ingenuity that uh, Canadians that can do attitude, positive attitude that, that brings so much to, you know, those coalitions that we're part of. What was the, you know, what was it for you that, that drew you in or that appealed about the Air Force to you? Well, like many uh, young uh, Canadians, I, I joined the, the Royal Canadian Air Cadets um, as a youth. My first introduction got a chance to go flying in a number of Air Force planes. Uh, you know, saw the snowbirds on Parliament Hill when I was young, and just the the adventure um, and and something about flying just really just pulled me in. And uh, you know, once once you're in and you realize the caliber of, caliber of people that you're working with. It's uh, it's a very fulfilling and meaningful job, and I was proud to uh, dedicate a career to it. 
I do wonder about the, you know, the name too, because, you know, as we, we talk about here, 1924, the Royal Canadian Air Force comes into existence. Then in the 1960s, the late 60s, the decision was made to just kind of amalgamate everything into the Canadian forces. So it wasn't until, I guess it was 2011, I think, that we made the decision to restore the name, the Royal Canadian Air Force. Was that important, do you think? Oh, I do think so. I mean, uh, while Canada is a young country, there aren't many institutions in the country that are a hundred years old right now. And and having that attachment to the to the roots um, of, of of the Royal Canadian Air Force was certainly important to me serving it, and I was I was very pleased. But you know that it took some time to reverse the decisions of the '60s to amalgamate the forces in 1975. Air Command was stood up, so finally you had uh, Air Force people commanding the Air Force again. Um, shortly thereafter, you had blue uniforms come back, and then the last piece of it was the name, which I know everyone who's in the in today's Air Force is, is pretty pleased to be a member of the Royal Canadian Air Force. In terms of looking forward, I mean, you know, we're finally going to to acquire new fighter jets. I think that that's long overdue. But, you know, we see now there's there's more focus on issues around Arctic sovereignty. And, and obviously, you know, the, the Air Force plays such a crucial role on, on that side of things. You know, it's still a, a world, a dangerous world, a lot of conflict. What do you see as, uh, you know, the future for the Royal Canadian Air Force? Well, I think from everything I'm seeing around the world, the importance of air power um, the air element is uh, is growing significantly. Both the complexity of today's um, surface-to-air missile systems, the you know the ability for adversaries to come right to our back doorstep in the Arctic, as you pointed out, really really important. And you know, when I was commander, we we always said that the Air Force was the guarantor of Canadian sovereignty because it was the only service you could get to every square foot of our country from the North Pole. Uh, down to you know the middle of the Pacific and the Atlantic, and protect Canadian interests and and bring, if required, you know lethal effect to do that. So it's an important role, and uh, and I I still do believe that the Air Force is the guarantor of Canadian sovereignty. Well, the book is called Pathway to the Stars: 100 Years of the RCAF. The event happening tonight. Uh, the uh, Hangar Flight Museum starting at 5.30. Around uh, the book, there's going to be um, a presentation as well. Looks like it's going to be an exciting event. Uh, listen, Michael, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. And uh, certainly thank you for, for your service to this country as well. But I uh, really do appreciate this. A pleasure, Rob, and, and thanks for your interest in bringing this to your listeners. An important week with Remembrance Day coming up. Yes, indeed. All the best, sir. Thanks again. There you go. That's uh, retired Lieutenant General Michael Hood, former commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. He's co-founder of the RCAF Foundation. The proceeds from this book are going to be dedicated to that. Again, Pathway to the Stars, 100 Years of the Royal Canadian Air Force. April 1st, 2024, the RCAF officially came into existence. So as mentioned, I mean, in the First World War, there were Canadians involved in air combat. Um, so... Uh, 2024 is when the Royal Canadian Air Force, where the name was bestowed, it was created. The name went away for a while, uh, as we discussed, uh, but 2011 is when it came back. And I think that that was an important change. Anyway, so you have the events happening uh, tonight, 530 at the Hangar Flight Museum. Looking forward to seeing all Canadians evacuated, and you can be sure and rest assured that this is our number one priority. 
So the federal government confirming today that uh, the first group of Canadians who were in Gaza have now made their way into Egypt. That was the foreign affairs minister uh, in a post on her social media accounts earlier today. Now, one wrinkle to all of that, uh, it should be noted, was the concern not just from Israel, but from Egypt that Hamas was using the opportunity to try to sneak its fighters or its top officials out of Gaza. So there was some back and forth over uh, whether injured or wounded Palestinians would be allowed to cross into Egypt for medical treatment. Concern from Egypt and Israel that Hamas was using that opportunity uh, to try to sneak its fighters out, which I think tells us a lot about the kinds of tactics that Hamas was deploying. So, um, Damas decided, look, if our, our people aren't going to get out, nobody is. And so that resulted uh, in a few days of inaction as nobody was crossing that border. Again, thanks to Hamas. And I think as we assess this whole conflict, it's really important to keep in mind how and why this is happening. The actions of Hamas a month ago today. And the actions of Hamas that continue to put civilians in danger. Uh, so the conflict is obviously intensified. Israel's prime minister uh, spoke a little while ago here today, which would be an uh, evening in Israel, uh, talked about his, his own responsibility, which was uh, interesting to note uh, for the fact that, uh, you know, Israel was caught off guard on October 7th. And a lot of Israelis see that as, as a failure, but the need to see this through. Uh, so it appears as though Israeli forces have now surrounded Gaza City. They basically cut off the north part of Gaza. Uh, as they uh, attempt to dismantle uh, Hamas, uh, the organization and its infrastructure. Now, there's a lot of concern, obviously, about the impact this conflict is having. And, and war is ugly. And there's no getting around that. There are rules and laws that apply to war. And there have been a lot of accusations flying back and forth uh, over international law, violations of international law. And are we seeing war crimes here? I mean, I think it's fair to say the atrocities of October 7th rise to and exceed that bar. What about the conflict we're seeing? And is Israel following international war? Certainly Israel's critics uh, have suggested uh, that they have not been. There's an interesting piece uh, in the National Post today, though, taking a closer look at all of that. Uh, joining us to talk more about it is uh, Richard Marceau, Vice President, General Counsel with the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, former member of Parliament. Uh, you can read his pieces mentioned nationalpost.com. Richard, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob, for having me. Uh, so first of all, where do we start when we start to assess the question of whether international law is being adhered to? How do we go about answering that question? Well, the first thing we have to do is to uh, make sure that we know what we're talking about. As you, as you mentioned, there is a lot of, uh, of noise. There are a lot of self-appointed um, experts on international law that, that uses big words without really knowing uh, what they're talking about. We also have experts that, are, that have uh, very specific points of view that, that, that would use international law uh, in a selective manner uh, to advance a point of view instead of looking at what international law says. So, I, so the, the answer to your question is making sure that when we talk about international law, we talk about international law and not some kind of, of politicized um, 
agenda to to say what internet what international law is when it it's not that mm-hmm. yeah look i mean there are there are obligations that israel has to adhere to and so i mean that, that falls into the context of what we're talking about here an obligation to try to minimize the impact on civilians but look no doubt there have been civilian civilian casualties in in this conflict but just the, the mere fact that there have been civilian casualties is is does that tell us anything about whether international law is being followed? Correct. So international law knows that in any conflict, unfortunately, uh, innocent civilians will die. Um, what international law requires is not that no civilians die. It has it is that no civilians be targeted, uh, and that's an important distinction. Um, so now the question becomes: Is um, is the uh, the response, for example, proportionate? And that was the the piece that I published in the National Post earlier today that you mentioned in your introduction. Um, and is Israel making uh, is taking is Israel taking all precautions possible to make sure that as uh, as few innocent Gazans die uh, in in the conflict? And and our answer is, is yes. Uh, the, the the things that Israel has been doing, asking civilians to leave combat areas, uh, sending leaflets, uh, doing making thousands and thousands of phone calls, uh, asking Gazans to to leave where uh, where Israel will attack. I think are good examples of what Israel has been doing. And you saw earlier this morning that when Israel opened a, a corridor, humanitarian corridor, and protected civilians from Hamas, which was trying to stop. Uh, Gazan citizens to leave uh, the combat areas. Thousands of of, uh, of, of Gazans did it uh, mm-hmm. in a way that was um, that was protected, that was safe, and that showed the difference between the state of Israel and the uh, and the terrorist group that is Hamas. Yeah, and uh, uh, some some aid is getting in as well, so that that was encouraging to see. Now, in terms of whether. You know, this this war itself is is in accordance with international law. What about Israel's right to defend itself, a right to respond to an attack like we saw a month ago? Well, uh, the the right to self defense is both customary international law, and uh, it is also uh, set out in Section Article Fifty One of the United Nations Charter. Uh, so it's not only a, a right that every state has to defend its citizens, but I would argue that it's also a duty for all the uh, all the cities, all the states in the world. So when you see 1,400 uh, people, uh, civilians, uh, you see babies that were killed, families that were burnt alive, women uh, raped, gang raped, um, people taking hostages. Th- those. This is a casus belli. This is a reason. Uh, that's reason enough uh, to trigger the right to uh, of any state to self-defense, and that is what Israel is doing. At the same time, making sure that it is doing its best to protect uh, Gazan citizens. And, and make no mistake, what we're seeing is uh, when you have 500 kilometers of tunnel built under uh, civilian infrastructures, where the command and control center of Hamas is under hospitals, um, that makes uh, Israel's job very, very difficult. And yet, despite this, despite the fact that Israel has the most powerful army in the region, it could easily flat out 
uh, flattened Gaza. It is trying not to do it. It's pinpointing its attacks and it's putting boots on the ground, whereas it could it could deal with it from the from the air. And it's trying to um, limit the number of, of innocents uh, being killed in the fighting. So we look at the other side then. I mean, we look at what happened on October 7th. We look at how Hamas has operated in Gaza in, you know, building its infrastructure within civilian areas, underneath civilian areas, even in this conflict, as you mentioned, you know, refusing to allow citizens to leave, uh, you know, basically hiding behind civilians. What does international law tell us uh, about all of this? Well, international law uh, completely forbids what what, uh, Hamas is doing. Uh, and that's the issue because Hamas does not care whatsoever about international law. If it did it on, on October 7th, it would not have attacked the way it did. It would not have killed babies, burned people alive, uh, shoot civilians the way it did. So we're in a situation where it's a, a symmetric warfare. You have a state, a democratic state that's trying to adhere and is adhering actually to international humanitarian international law. And you have a, a, an enemy, Hamas in this case, that does not care about anything. So everybody who's calling, for example, for immediate ceasefire now uh, does not is thinking in Western terms, thinking, oh, well, if there's a ceasefire, Hamas will respect it and Israel will respect it. And we know and many people have said and even fierce critics of Israel have said that were there be a ceasefire, it would give the opportunity for Hamas to regroup and to to plan the next attack. Uh, So a, a ceasefire now is to leave the culprits in power in Gaza, which guarantees that there will be a, a, certainly another attempt for another uh, October 7th. Well, as I mentioned, your piece is up at nationalpost.com. Much more at cija.ca. Richard, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate the input. Thank you, Rob. All Bye-bye. the best. Uh, Richard Marceau, Vice President, General Counsel with the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, former member of Parliament. Uh, so his piece today, looking at some of these questions around international law, what it tells us about the right to self-defense, what it tells us about proportionality, what it tells us about the obligation to try to protect civilians, and also what it tells us about what Hamas did on October 7th and what it's been doing since then. By the way, new poll out today from Angus Reid asking Canadians uh, on this uh, matter. Uh, 78% agree with the statement that Israel has the right to exist and to defend itself. Only 9% disagree. I think public opinion is pretty overwhelming uh, on this whole situation, which is encouraging to see. And I think it's why, you know, the government has largely uh, sided with that perspective here. So the Alberta government announced today uh, a new consultation, and this concerns the Local Authorities Elections Act and the Municipal Government Act. It says municipal councils are an important part of democracy, have a direct impact on all Albertans. To strengthen the local election process and improve trust in locally elected officials, Alberta's government is seeking input from the public and stakeholders. Uh, so they're launching some new surveys. They'll be open until December 6th. They'll inform potential changes to the two acts. Now, one of the ideas that's come up, and uh, this is going to be a part of this consultation, it sounds like, is the idea of having political parties at the municipal level. Uh, As you probably know, if you've uh, voted in a municipal election or participated in municipal politics, you know that there aren't political parties. Individuals have their ideas. You might find like-minded individuals sitting on various city or town councils. But in municipal elections, either as mayor, or reeve, or councillor, whatever, you're running as an individual. Does that need to change? 
Now, Alberta municipalities, which represents municipalities uh, in Alberta, now they recently voted against this idea. They've also released some new polling uh, conducted uh, in September that finds 68% of Albertans want municipal candidates to run as individuals, not as party representatives. So joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Tyler Gandum, who is uh, mayor of Wetaskiwin, Alberta, and president of Alberta Municipalities, much more at abmunis.ca. Tyler, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for having me. All right, so what's your sense, your understanding then of, of what this consultation is, is going to involve? I think just hearing from the general public on whether or not there's a will to have political parties at a municipal level. And I, I give the government credit that they're reaching out and getting that information before they're making a decision um, based on something that maybe not a lot of MLAs or provincial government employees would know much about in terms of a municipal election and what it takes and the type of people who are running in those elections. Right. I mean, if they're considering the idea, this is the right way to go about it, to do that consultation as opposed to just going ahead and doing it. But how or why did this come about in the first place? We've been told that they wanted more municipal election turnouts and they wanted to make it easier for candidates to fundraise. Um, were the two kind of main reasons we were told that they're even looking at this. Right. Okay. Well, and I mean, further to that, as, as someone who obviously has you know, competed in, in municipal election and as a, a mayor of a, of a city in Alberta, what do you make of those arguments? I think voter turnout is low for sure. I think you see a difference in the turnout between different municipalities, depending on what the issues are of the day. I know that if two mayoral candidates have very strong opposing views on, a, on, a, on an issue locally, it definitely drives voter turnout up. We've also seen where municipalities struggle just to get enough people on the ballot, let alone who's showing up to vote for those individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't speak for Edmonton or Calgary in terms of their role in fundraising, but I know even at a mid-city level, fundraising isn't a huge priority for those running in cities outside of the urban, like the big centers of Edmonton and Calgary. So I, for 200 and uh, totally 330 municipalities across the province take out the two that are Edmonton and Calgary and now the fundraising option or reason really isn't anything that we need to be concerned about. But what's the downside? Even if maybe the, the potential upside is overstated, what, what's the concern here, the potential downside? What we see is that at a municipal level, we aren't politically driven. So you might get... Um, a slate of candidates running or a, a political party um, that aligns with whether it's a conservative or NDP or the Alberta party, whichever it happens to be. That's not the issues that municipal councils are dealing with when it comes to infrastructure, creating safer, healthier communities, building rec centers, uh, recreation, making sure the programs are in place, making sure that snow clearing is done, um, all of those things require zero political party affiliation, nor should they. So all things being equal, then, uh, that perhaps you know, we're, we're better off with, with the status quo. I, I believe so. And I think that not only our members, but uh, the surveys that were conducted by Janet Brown show that there isn't a real desire to have political parties. So it'll be interesting to see and hear the feedback that 
um, the provincial government gets on this over the next couple of months. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think, you know, this survey is an, an interesting jumping off point. Yet it's a good sense of maybe where Albertans are at. What, what stands out to you in, in this polling? I, I'm just really interested to hear what other people think. I know that I've run in elections since 2013. Uh, in my very first election that I ran, it wasn't necessarily a political party affiliation, but a slate had run, yeah. and they, they weren't successful. And I haven't seen a lot of success in other municipalities where a slate of candidates run where they get elected, because it's got to be more than a one-issue um, campaign or platform that anybody's running on, whether you're running individually or as a slate. I think ideas are important. I think it's really important for a municipality and the residents to have um, a really good mix of who their council is. And I think that's why you see such a variant degree of um, left-leaning, right-leaning, centric, aligned-minded political people that all sit on the same council and work really well together. So as Janet Brown found in, in her polling here, 68% would prefer to see municipal candidates run as individuals. Just 24% say they'd prefer to see them as members of a political party. So that, that's a big discrepancy. What, what kind of a message does that send, do you think? I think it's really clear that at the municipal level, a political party affiliation means nothing when you're looking at having a road redone or a sidewalk built or creating a rec center. Uh, so your, your organization has, has made your voice clear. Um, do you get the sense that, that that's resonated with the Alberta government at all? I think so. I think the fact that they're putting out to a poll as well to get the feedback and not just moving forward on something that they feel strongly about shows that they're listening to not only the residents, seeing the polls and the surveys that are conducted as well, but hearing our association and hearing our members saying that this isn't something that we're necessarily interested in or what we should be spending our time or focusing on right now. We'll see where this all goes from here. Much more is mentioned, abmunis.ca, the website for the Alberta municipalities. Uh, Tyler, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Rob. All the best. Uh, that's Tyler Gandum. He's uh, president of Alberta Municipalities, also the mayor of Wetaskiwin, former firefighter. And yeah, I mean, you know, municipal politics uh, in a city the size of Wetaskiwin, it's a whole different ballgame from, from Calgary or Edmonton. But I mean, if the rules are going to change, they'll change everywhere. Uh, according to this uh, polling, uh, as mentioned, Janet Brown, one of uh, the, the most respected uh, pollsters in Alberta, with a pretty good track record, finds 68% uh, of Albertans surveyed prefer to see municipal candidates run as individuals. Uh, one in four, 24% say they prefer to see them run as members of political party. So did you think need to change? Would that change your engagement with municipal politics at all? Now, I guess we would have to see what this looks like in practice, but I remember when it came up, and the idea was floated by the premier the first time. The thinking was that this would not be the, the parties that exist at the provincial level also being at the municipal level. So you wouldn't theoretically have the UCP candidates or NDP candidates running in municipal elections. They would maybe be municipal specific parties. But look, I mean, nothing's been decided at this point. So who knows what it looks like in the end? Uh, and it's a little more awkward, too, when it comes to municipal elections, because it's not about forming a government, right? It's just about each individual vote, what passes and what doesn't. So it's not about who has a majority on city council. And I mean, you know, electing a mayor is very different because we don't elect a, a chief executive at the provincial or federal level. But we do at the municipal level. We elect, uh, you know, the, the leader of the, the city, as it were.
Uh, so that that's a little different, too. That's not as conducive to uh, party politics as we understand it. But, you know, there, there seems to be some support for the idea. Not sure why the Alberta government is um, enthusiastic about the idea. Uh, someone texted to point out that, uh, you know, groups like Take Back Alberta <laughs> might be really interested in this. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.